following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. What does it mean to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ? In Matthew chapter 4, we read of Jesus Christ gathering disciples to himself in his early ministry in Galilee. And when we, what we see here is that Christ Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham, who came to save his people from their sins, as we learn in chapter 1, who was recognized by God the Father as beloved Son in Matthew chapter 3, who was anointed then by the Holy Spirit, who in chapter 4, thwarted the temptations of the devil in the wilderness and then stationed himself as a preacher of the kingdom of heaven in Capernaum, calling men to repentance, employs here a disciple-gathering strategy in the advancement of his kingdom purposes. Matthew's gospel presents to us Christ as the promised Messiah of the Jews and as the prophesied heir of the throne of David. And as Messiah King then, our Lord's purpose, one of His purposes, is to gather to Himself a community of disciples into a kingdom to be presented to God the Father. And our text this morning shows us what entrance into Christ's kingdom looks like, and therefore, in a this way, what it means to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. What it means to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. What it is that Zoe and Abigail and others of us have committed to be by public profession and by inward desire. And what I'll seek to show you from this text then is that you will respond rightly to Christ's call to discipleship if and only if you understand rightly his kingdom purpose among us. Again, you will respond rightly to Christ's call to discipleship if and only if you understand rightly his kingdom purpose among us. And we'll consider this under two headings, breaking up the text before us into two parts. First, that the right response to Christ's call to discipleship is immediate pursuit of his instruction from verses 18 to 22. And then secondly, Christ's kingdom purpose is to restore humanity to fellowship with the triune God in verses 23 through the end of the chapter. First, we need to consider, as the text presents to us, what it means to respond, or what it looks like to respond rightly to Christ's call to discipleship. And I want to put three things before you in this connection, beginning at verse 18. First, notice that those who are called in this passage are fishermen. And that expresses to us a truth that I think is confirmed by each of our experiences. And that is that those who are called to discipleship are frequently occupying a low social station. Those who are called frequently occupy a low social station. Notice in verse 18 that Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee. He's diligently walking by the sea in search of something. He's not in search of nobles or princes, or else he wouldn't have been walking by the Sea of Galilee. But he's in search of fishermen to call as disciples. They're not wealthy. They're not of noble pedigree or high station. No, these are hardworking laborers. These are guys that get their hands dirty. I mean, like, really 
dirty. Consider what they're doing. They're casting nets into the sea, gathering fish into their boats, and then prepping the fish for consumption or throwing out rotten fish. I mean, it's a nasty business that they're engaged. And this should draw us then to ask a question. As we look around the congregation today, and, and this is true in any of our churches here in the upstate or even around the country, who among us or how many among us are born into wealth, prestige, honor, or nobility? Many of us, in fact, have tragic family histories, don't we? Those of us who come from upstanding Christian families nevertheless have not experienced fabulous wealth, at least not to my understanding. Most of us haven't experienced the taste of fame in the world or high social standing. No, socially, we are rather insignificant. But spiritually, and this is more important to understand, we're not just insignificant, but we're offensive to God by nature. When Christ finds us, he finds us as sinners, transgressors of God's law, having gotten our hands dirty, not because we're hard workers, but because we've engaged in iniquity and sin. We are unprofitable servants of the king of the universe, having rejected his rule and rebelled against him. But my friends, you are precisely the kind of people that Christ himself is diligently pursuing is engaged wholeheartedly to call to himself. And he comes to you saying, follow me. He comes to you, he calls to you to come after him. And he testifies of himself in Matthew 9, 13, along these lines, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. He indeed calls those who occupy a low social station, and he calls those who are lowly in spirit and in record and in their own righteousness quotient. And having seen that, then, we might ask, okay, so we're sinners. We don't occupy high social status. How then are we supposed to respond to this Christ's call? And we see in the second place, then, from this passage from this incident, these two incidents of Jesus calling the fishermen, is that those who are called immediately then obey Christ's summons. This is what the right response looks like. Look at verse 19. He said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And then in verse 22, speaking of the interaction with the sons of Zebedee, we have almost the identical language. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. When Christ comes upon these two pairs of brothers, Simon, Peter, and Andrew on one hand, and then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, he encounters them in the middle of their regular work as fishermen, casting a net into the sea in one case, mending their nets in their boats with their father in the other case, but immediately they heed his call. There's no hesitation. They drop what they're doing. In both cases, they immediately leave their daily trade. They leave their possessions even, probably in the care of other workers or servants. In one case, we're told explicitly, leaving their very father, their surroundings, all that's familiar, and they leave all these things for him to follow after Jesus Christ. There's no hesitation in following Christ then. The focus of verses 20 and 22 is on the following after Jesus Christ. The leaving is almost incidental. It's a circumstance of what it means to follow Jesus. 
So what does it look like for you and me then to follow Jesus Christ, to be his disciples? Well, one feature is prompt obedience to his summons. When he says, come, follow me, you are to come and follow him without delay, without any hesitation. Boys and girls, do you do this when your parents say, come here? When they say, get out of this street, or don't go up on that chair, or don't walk up those steps, come here to me, follow me. Do you render prompt obedience to your parents or other authority figures when they ask you to do something? When Dr. Piper tells you to stop running around in the church, do you immediately and promptly obey him and follow after him? These are little examples, but they, I think, reflect and express a profound truth. And that is, as disciples of Jesus Christ, as members of his church, when we hear his voice, speak, when he, we hear him speaking to us, either through the preaching of the word or in our reading of the word, do we have a reaction like the fishermen in this case, of prompt and full obedience to the Lord Jesus? Do you respond to him immediately and completely and entirely without grumbling in full confidence that your prompt obedience is not only honoring to him but also good for you? So we see the kind of people that the Lord Jesus calls those who occupy a low social condition in most cases. And then we also see what it looks like to respond to that call immediately and fully and without any hesitation. And so then we can ask Perhaps most importantly, to what does Christ call these men? What does he call them to? He calls them to discipleship. And he expresses that in verse 19. Follow me and I will make you or make you to become fishers of men. This strikes right into the heart of Matthew's gospel. Matthew is very concerned. Um, in, the, in the strength and power and direction of the Holy Spirit to show us this theme, that Christ's revival of David's kingdom as a spiritual kingdom, the kingdom of heaven on earth, involves the establishment or creation of a community of disciples who are consecrated to, dedicated to a particular mission or task. And what royal court is complete without servants and sons, ambassadors and princes, sages and scribes? And all of these words in different ways describe and color what this community of disciples is to look like. Thus, Christ makes a promise here. He makes a promise and he also makes a prediction to these men that he's calling to himself to equip them for this particular mission of his. This particular work that he has in mind for his church and for the members of his church. And into what shall he make them? He promises to make them into something. He says, I will transform you from gatherers of fish to become fishers of men. Building on something that they already understood. One of the primary tasks with which, uh, or which Christ has set before the church is to make disciples. So even as he's making disciples, he's going to say to the church and to his disciples, Go ye therefore and make 
disciples of all nations in Matthew 28. And just as David gathered about himself loyal followers and soldiers and advisors and priests as king, so too Jesus, between this point in Matthew 4, uh, verse 19, and then the end of the gospel, is going to be gathering to himself followers and disciples for the kingdom. And as a good king then, Christ will equip his subjects and court officials, his disciples, with instruction in the truth which accords to godliness. And which equips them then to go and to gather more disciples and subsequent generations for himself. And this equipping, this instruction, that's what discipleship is. It's the sum and substance of discipleship. One of the areas of ministry focus of this church in Antioch is, in fact, discipleship. If you look at the inside portion of your bulletin, when you open it up, you see that areas of ministry focus. Discipleship is listed there. It's on our website. It's in all our materials that we hand out. But more significantly, it's it's really the heartbeat of what we're seeking to do here as, um, as the session and elders and as Calvary Presbytery. You see, Calvary Presbytery, your elders, Dr. Piper and I, are wholeheartedly committed to pursue your discipleship and the discipleship of those who come into this church. So as you come under the preaching of the word here from this pulpit, as you listen for Christ's call to faithful Christian discipleship, we hope you hear it. And that you hear it in our instruction, in our preaching, in our teaching. And you know, as a small church, we don't have many programs yet or meetings from week to week. But what we do have is, and I assure you this, intentionally crafted, not just to keep you busy or distracted from temptation or something like that, but positively to be a means of discipleship to you in your life that you then might be found profitable as servants to Christ in your daily lives. Antioch Presbyterian Church, as I've already mentioned earlier, is both a spiritual hospital for sin-sick sinners, a refuge for those fleeing temptation out of the world, and a schoolhouse of kingdom disciples who will then be sent into the world for the purpose of proclaiming the excellencies of our Lord in a hostile environment, and yet an environment in which the elect are waiting to be called. And so I encourage you, I implore you, Take advantage of all that you can to grow up into full maturity as a disciple of Christ. And personally speaking, Dr. Piper and I were never bothered when you reach out to us with a question or with a, with a request for advice as to different resources or when you run something by us. We're thrilled to hear from you in that way. Because those interactions will complement what we're doing here in Sunday school and in the pulpit to encourage your growth as disciples. And so now, we've seen Christ calling those who occupy a low social status, which we should really relate to each of us. We see the proper response being immediate um, uh, obedience to his summons. And what the telos, or end, or goal is, and that is to equip us for kingdom work. That's what Christ is wanting to do. 
And what we're going to see now in the second half of our passage is the importance and desirability of the kingdom then. Uh, We've front-loaded what the response ought to be, what's required of us, but now we're going to examine in closer detail why it is that we should desire this. Do you understand? Why it is we should want to be disciples. Because you can only respond rightly to Christ's call if you understand rightly what his kingdom purposes are among us. And that's what the second part of our passage shows us, that Christ's kingdom purpose is to restore humanity to fellowship with the triune God. To reverse not only the effects of the curse, but also to subvert the power of the curse and to renew us after the image and likeness of God as we come into contact with him. So in the first place, as we look at verses 23 and following, we see Christ on his mission. And his mission is to pursue diligently a restored humanity. But who sent him on this mission? Well, we know from John's gospel and elsewhere that the Father sends the Son to pursue diligently a restored humanity. Look at verse 23. Again, we find Christ on the move. This time, he's going throughout all Galilee. He's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And in so doing, he enters into the synagogues. He's teaching on the kingdom, gathering to himself students and pupils and disciples. And he also performs miraculous healings, demonstrating his kingly power in ushering in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 23 in our passage is crucial for understanding Matthew's gospel, particularly chapters 4 through 9, as it's a summary or theme verse for Christ's earthly ministry, especially this first phase of his earthly ministry in Galilee that will extend to chapter 9, where we read in 9.35 the familiar refrain then, Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Matthew's teaching us something here. As he himself was a disciple, he is by his words and the power of the Spirit discipling us. Why has Christ come? He's come to make disciples, but why fundamentally? Matthew 1.21 tells us that Christ has come to save his people from their sins. Again, Matthew 1.23 cites the prophet Isaiah who said, They shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us, restoring us, redeeming us out of our sins to have fellowship with God the Father through the work of the Son by the power of the Spirit. And when we bring these statements into relationship with one another in the light of uh, chapter 4, verse 23 and, and 9, 35, we should see then that the Father sends the Son to pursue diligently a restored humanity. Mankind fallen in sin must be restored to dwell with God. We cannot dwell with God as we are. God cannot tolerate sin. And so he sends his son to call us to himself as we are, sent by the Father to be about his Father's work, gathering and then sanctifying sinners to dwell with him in holy fellowship. There's a lot there. Let's pause for a moment to reflect upon it. Returning here to verse 23, consider how amazing it is that Christ over whom the Father pronounced in chapter 3, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This very same Christ, 
He was going throughout all Galilee. Remember last week, if you were with us, I made the point that this region in which he was setting up his, his kingdom ministry, you couldn't have found a more deplorable region of spiritual rejects and, and mixed multitudes. It was the lowest of the low, but this is where he comes to demonstrate his power, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. This Christ, the Son of God, God the Son, voluntarily, willingly, earnestly, and diligently bridged the infinite gap between holy creator and unholy creation. Why? To be about his Father's business. To be about his Father's business in pursuit of a restored humanity to redeem us, to save us, you and me. Because in this mission, in this work, the Father takes great delight, mysteriously and wondrously so. How how marvelous is this to our puny minds and imaginations? We can't comprehend it, but perhaps we we can grab hold of it as a source of strength and help to us, that the Father sent the Son to pursue you, to set you free from sin. Next, having seen the Father's sending expressed in the beginning of verse 23 as Jesus going throughout all Galilee, we then might consider the actual work of Christ here in a bit more detail, that He came teaching and proclaiming the gospel of a restored humanity. See, Christ's diligent pursuit is comprised of one main activity and then two subsidiary act- activities that flow out of the main like a, like a, or flow into the main and out of the main like two tributaries into a great river. The main activity here is his proclamation of the gospel or good news of the kingdom. That restoration is coming, that the kingdom is at hand. And in this, his message bears a slightly different emphasis than John's. We know from 4.17 that Christ indeed echoed John in calling upon his hearers to repent of their sins in order for entrance into the kingdom. And surely he warned his hearers of the threat of coming judgment. But the emphasis of his message in verse 23 and following is on the good news of restoration and kingdom renewal in a fuller, richer spiritual uh, dispensation or administration of the covenant of grace. The subsidiary activities then, the the supporting activities of Christ that flow into and out of this, this preaching ministry are His teaching and healing. Positive things. Things that build up and encourage and, and bind up the wounded. Having considered then the Father's sending, the, the Son's proclamation as prophet, priest, and king, then we, we can move to the Spirit's healing which is perhaps the most dramatic of, uh, of what's revealed to us in this text. His healing through the Son, which then constitutes or establishes or makes, remakes a restored humanity. Notice here in verses 23, the last part of 23 through 25, that there's no malady, no affliction too great for Christ to address. He heals every kind of disease, every kind of sickness, including but not limited to various illnesses, pains, demon uh, possession, epilepsy in our text, but I really think that's referring to lunacy. 
And then paralysis. He heals multitudes from all over the surrounding regions. There's no geographic bounds to his power. Uh, these regions populated by both Jews and Gentiles, but it's not clear that the Gentiles are responding to him yet. It might just be Jews who live in these areas, but regardless, he's staking his claim over all kinds of people from all kinds of places. And in subsequent chapters, we'll read about a sampling of his healings and certainly a summary of his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. And the question then is, why can Christ accomplish this? Because he came in the power of the Holy Spirit. That great, that personal gift of heaven, that gift of the Father's grace to restore humanity to communion with the triune God, to make us fit for fellowship with him. In our passage this morning, we see a glimpse, we catch a glimpse of the Spirit's work of restoration through the Son. And for what purpose? To reestablish David's throne, to usher in the kingdom of heaven among men, and to bring healing in his wings. Christ is coming as that great deliverer promised in Isaiah's book of comfort, chapters 40 to 66, which we've looked at at various points over the last couple of months. And Christ's kingdom purpose to restore humanity to fellowship with the triune God is seen, then not, uh, is seen in this healing ministry by the Spirit that he's engaging in. Remember that he was sent by the Father to do it. And it's accompanying the Son's proclamation of the gospel of restored humanity. And so at play we see in these verses the involvement of all three persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because, my friends, we as His church are being constituted and drawn together and sanctified and prepared and and delivered for fellowship with a triune God. And he's wholly and completely invested in that work. So just as this morning we celebrated the admission of two young women to the Lord's table, so too we celebrate what God, the triune God, has done in his church over countless generations and in each of our lives drawing us out of darkness into his marvelous light, constituting us as disciples that we might grow in grace and godliness and be of use to him. And yet, I seek to remind you that having caught a glimpse of his glorious purpose, examine yourself in your own heart. Are you responding rightly to him? And if not, why not? What obstacles are in place? There's a lot of reasons why people do not repent or or fail to heed the call of Christ. Perhaps it's a sense of guilt and shame weighing you down. Perhaps it's it's a bad experience with the church in the past or with burdens of this life and distractions of need and want and pain. Well, Christ says, I take care of all of that. And he says, without any qualification, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. I will equip you. I will instruct you. I will disciple you, Christ says. And that right response, it will come out of, it will be birthed out of one thing, and that is true faith in this Lord Jesus. That he is about what he says he's about. And he's proven that he is. And he's proven that he's true. 
Because this testimony to us with details of place and people and things in verses 23 through 25 and extending into subsequent chapters, this is a true witness. This is the Jesus to whom we're coming as a people. And so we should come without reserve and without hesitation. And finally, I want to close with this last picture from chapter 5, verse 1. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And we're not going to go into this in any great depth. We'll open this up as we launch into the Sermon on the Mount in, in, in a week or two. But what I do wish to point out to you is that Christ, he's successful in what he, uh, what he sets out to do, what his Father sends him to do. Because when he goes up on the mountain, when he sits down as a teacher in that place before the crowds, who comes to him, we're told? His disciples came to him. And I'm fully confident that God, by his Spirit, working through his word, in the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, with all authority in heaven and on earth, handed over to him, that whenever we individually or corporately call out and say, follow the Lord Jesus Christ, be ye disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, that his disciples, those who are elect from eternity past, will indeed heed his summons, come to him, and sit with him to receive his instruction and guidance. Because he is utterly convincing, and the Spirit is able to do it. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.